are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik. We've been doing this for some time now, and we are very happy whenever any of you can join us. Uh, What we do on Thursday afternoons is I get together and I come in first and I get ready to answer a lead question. Today's lead question comes from a question I couldn't get to last week. And we like to occasionally go through the questions that we can't get to in a particular question and answer session and deal with them on a subsequent question and answer time as a lead question. So that's going to be it for today. Uh, Today's question comes from Adonis. And last week he put forth this question. Um, Is the sinless perfection of Jesus a part of the gospel? Can one believe in the gospel while believing that Jesus sinned? Please give reasons for your answer. Okay, Adonis, that's a great question and it's an entirely fair question to ask. Let me give you the best answer that I can come up with. Um, First of all, let's talk about the truth of the sinless perfection of Jesus. Now, I know you're not asking about that specifically, But I just want to give our viewers a background in this. The truth of the sinless perfection of Jesus, in theological terms, is often called the impeccability of Jesus Christ. Impeccability is just a fancier word for sinlessness. And it's an important part of understanding who Jesus is, and it's clearly revealed in the Bible for us. Let me just run through a few scriptural passages. First of all, we have Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So please, please don't miss that very important qualifier there. The writer of the Hebrews makes it very clear that Jesus was tempted. Matter of fact, in all points tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. Then again, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, it says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, what's fascinating about that is that those words of John would apply to not only the sinless life of Jesus, but also in the fact that when he was crucified and stood in the place of sinful man, he himself did not become a sinner. No, instead what he did was the most holy, righteous act of love and obedience that the universe has ever seen. We have another reference here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which says, For he made him, that speaking of God the Father, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, I want to draw your attention to those specific words of the Apostle Paul. He describes Jesus as him who knew no sin. In other words, that's Jesus. He had never sinned. And God the Father, of course, did not make Jesus a sinner on the cross. Instead, Jesus stood in the place of sinful humanity. We could continue on. I'll just give a few more of these. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 46, Jesus said to his critics, the religious leaders, which of you convicts me of sin, and if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? 
If you think about that, think about the audacity to stand before a audience of hostile questioners and to give them the open invitation. Do you guys have anything to convict me of sin? Go ahead, name a sin that I have committed. And they were unable to because Jesus had no sin. And again, just a couple more because I love these passages that speak of the sinless nature of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 36, John the Baptist is speaking here. It says, and looking at Jesus, as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, again, if you think about it, the Lamb of God, that spotless Lamb of God, without sin, without stain, without blemish. And I'll just throw one more idea up there, where in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, if Jesus was sinless prior to his incarnation, to the adding of his humanity to his deity, if he was sinless before that, then he was sinless in his incarnation as well, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, now, this is what we need to acknowledge here. Adonis wasn't really asking if Jesus was sinless. We need to be very fair with the question. No, specifically, um, what we've seen is that uh, Jesus was without sin, but what Adonis wanted to know is, is understanding the sinless perfection of Jesus, is that an essential part of the gospel? And what we would just simply say to that, here's my answer to that, no and yes. Let me explain both aspects. No, it is not essential to understand and believe the sinless nature of Jesus in the sense that someone does not have to understand the doctrine of the impeccability of Jesus Christ in order to trust in, to rely on, and to cling to the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what he did at the cross and the resurrection. We aren't saved by our doctrinal precision or by our doctrinal depth. We are saved by Jesus Christ. So it's not as if um, salvation or coming into right relationship with God is actually a process of clicking every box correctly doctrinally. No, no, doctrine, of course, is involved. However, the real test The real difficulty here is that people can have some measure of ignorance in doctrine and still be saved. I'll explain further. So that's the no part. No, it's not essential to salvation in that respect. But here, it is essential to salvation in the sense that if someone denies the truth of the sinless Jesus— They are denying something fundamental to the nature of Jesus. Adonis, and for everybody else, listen to this carefully. A sinful Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. A sinful Jesus does not truly exist. A sinful Jesus cannot save. You see, sometimes I like to talk about bringing the real you to the real Jesus. Now, we have to come to Jesus 
just as we really are with all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our mess. And that is coming to Jesus humbly in repentance. But we must also come to the real Jesus, the Jesus who actually exists, the Jesus that's described for us in the Bible. So let me put it to you this way. Someone can be ignorant or uneducated about the sinless nature of Jesus, and they can be in right relationship with God. They just don't have a sophisticated understanding of who Jesus is. Um, You can just imagine, for example, and this is just a hypothetical example, but if you were to take the um, 3,000 who were saved on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and if on that day they were saved, the day of Pentecost, if you were to survey them and say, was Jesus sinless? Maybe some would say, yes, someone, they're just, they could be ignorant of that point of theology. But, and here's the important point, someone can't deny the truth about Jesus, especially in one of the fundamental aspects of who he is and still be in right relationship with God. Do you catch the distinction there? I think it's a very important distinction to make. God is gracious towards our ignorance, towards our lack of understanding. But if somebody knowingly denies the truth about what the Bible says about Jesus, and look, um, maybe somebody would come along and say, well, I think the Bible says Jesus was sinful. No, you're wrong. You're just wrong. That's all there is to it. It doesn't matter if you think you got a verse here or there. The testimony of the scriptures is persuasive. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, was sinless. If you think different, you're wrong. Now, somebody could be ignorant of that and be saved. But for somebody to knowingly deny a fundamental aspect of who Jesus is means that they don't really know the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who actually exists the only Jesus who can bring salvation to our soul. So that's the distinction that I would make there. And that's why I don't think it's as easy to answer the question, is a sinless Jesus a gospel essential? It's not as easy to answer it as yes or no. It's yes in one respect, it is essential. No, in another respect, it's not essential. It really depends on the type of objection a person would have and the depths of their objection. So again, I hope that's helpful for you there, Adonis. And uh, thank you again for that question. Glad that we could get to it from the last week. Okay, let me go here on a couple of um, questions that have come in from Devin, our moderator. These are questions that you've entered in on the live chat. And um, I hope as well, we love to give a greeting out to our TWR360 audience, Transworld Radio 360, that marvelous ministry from Transworld Radio that's been reaching the world via shortwave radio for decades and decades, and for a good time now, has also been reaching the world through their online presence, TWR360. Uh, Welcome to that audience. We're glad that you could join us today. And now let me get to the question that comes to us from Philip. Philip asked this question. What is the biblical backing for the baptism of the Holy Spirit? 
In my study of spiritual gifts, I'm having a bit of hang-up on this particular issue. I'm a cessationist attending a Calvary chapel. Well, Philip, the biblical basis for the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is simply this, that Jesus promised that there would be a baptism of the Holy Spirit. He promised this to his disciples. He said, wait for this promise of the Father, which in another place he seems to describe as well as a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we understand the concept of baptism, I think it helps us to understand. Nobody is literally dunked in a literal substance called the Holy Spirit. But actually, what that word baptism means is to immerse something or someone into something, to to dip it down into something so that it's covered over. Now, that can be used literally. uh, I immersed the fabric into the dye and it was baptized. And we find just that kind of usage in the ancient world. So, it can mean to uh, do something uh, literally, but it can also be used in a figurative sense. Um, I have been immersed in suffering. I've been baptized into suffering, and Jesus used it just in that way as well. So, Jesus specifically spoke of a baptism of the Holy Spirit that his people would receive. Now, here's really the debate, Philip. The debate is whether or not the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus specifically mentioned, is that an experience that's common to every believer when they are born again, or is it a experience subsequent to salvation? Now, we, we need to keep a few things in mind. The Bible makes it very clear that every person who is born again by God's Spirit, every person who puts their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what he did on the cross and in his resurrection— Every one of those people has the Holy Spirit. It's not as if some Christians have the Holy Spirit and some Christians don't have the Spirit. If you are a true Christian, I just don't mean in a cultural sense or in an ethnic sense. I mean, if you are a true Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit. But there is at least some reason, these are debated things among Christians, but there's at least some reason to believe that what Jesus spoke about with the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a experience subsequent to that, where they a person could be a believer and have the Holy Spirit in some sense, yet perhaps not have the fullness of the Holy Spirit that God would grant to a person. I think that sometimes it's possible to get too hung up on the terminology of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um. I don't think that terminology is irrelevant. I think it is something worth talking about and in some respect worth fighting for. But what I often do with people who seem to be distressed or hung up with that terminology, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because of the controversy that's often associated with it, I'll just emphasize the concept of the filling of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul the Apostle wrote to the Ephesians and wrote to all Christians by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he said, be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the grammatical sense of what he wrote in the original language of the New Testament, uh, common Greek. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what I think our 
duty, so to speak, is. We need to have a continual filling of the Holy Spirit in our life. So I recommend to people, if you're hung up on the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then just ask yourself, am I continually being filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, let me say this. There are plenty of people who act as if the evidence of truly being filled with the Spirit are spectacular miracles and works and signs and this. And let me say, those definitely have their place and can be some indication of the work of the Spirit of God. Absolutely so. But the real evidence of the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit, I would say, is the fruit of the Spirit described for us in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, answer, and so forth and so on. It is the fruit of the Spirit that really is evident that a person is filled with the Spirit of God, that a person is flowing in the Spirit of God. That's what needs to have great emphasis upon it. Now, again, I don't want to take away from the fact that the Holy Spirit does wonderful and miraculous things in the world today. I believe that he does. But the real evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in a individual and in a congregation is the fruit of the Spirit in their midst. So, Philip, that's kind of a long answer to a question. I do believe that the cessationist position is wrong. Um, and I think it's wrong for a lot of reasons. I've been thinking about maybe some videos I should do on this subject because I think there are many fundamental premises that are wrong in the cessationist camp. Yet, let me say, I do respect my cessationist brethren and I am grateful for them for the zeal they have for the integrity of God's word and the low level of tolerance that they have for so much of the foolishness that goes on in the name of the Holy Spirit. Um, I think that our cessationist brethren are to be commended for those things. Hope that helps you, Philip. Let me go on to the next question from Lucho. Um, what is your take on masonry? Can a Christian be a mason? Lucho, um, I'll give you my impression, although I do want to uh, say at the beginning that I have not done an in-depth study of the Masonic movement and institutions and all that. But from what limited study I have done, I would say that a Christian should not be a Mason. Now, you, you say, can a Christian be? Listen, Christians can be messed up in all kinds of ways and still be Christians and still go to heaven. Um, is it possible for a Christian to get drunk? Yes, it's possible, but it shouldn't happen. So I don't like so much answering the question, can a Christian be a Mason, but should a Christian be a Mason? And my conclusion would be no. Now, I understand that for many people, a Masonic lodge or a Masonic gathering, it's just a community service club. They get together and they do good things for the community and they have a sense of camaraderie and this. And I understand that for many people, that is sort of their atmosphere of the Masonic uh, Lodge and the Masonic institutions. But when you look at any kind of depth, 
it really is set up as a quasi-religion and not a biblical religion, but filled with a lot of superstition and a lot of paganism. So, if the question is, should a Christian be a Mason? I would say no. It's better to have a separation from the Masonic movement and find some social service or community group that maybe does the same things that some of the good things that Masons may do, but without those weird spiritual connections. Hope that helps you there, Lucho. Next question comes from Junebug, who asks, is the Catholic belief that salvation comes through Jesus plus needing to do good works a damning heresy? Well, look, Junebug, I would put it this way. A failure to trust in Jesus Christ is damning. So, if somebody would put their trust in something or someone else, that's damning. So, if a person puts their trust in the church or in the sacraments or ceremonies of the church instead of in Jesus Christ, that soul is in trouble. If a soul puts its trouble, its trust in Mary or the saints or looks to them as mediators, which, look, according to official Catholic doctrine, they're not to do that. But we know that many people in the Roman Catholic Church effectively do that. If a soul does that, it's in trouble. But let me add this. If a person essentially puts their trust in a celebrity pastor uh, from the Protestant world, from the evangelical world, and they think that they, you know, are sort of their mediator before God, that soul is in trouble. So, anything that takes away from an individual's reliance on Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done to be our salvation, that soul is in trouble. It's kind of an easy way to figure this out. You just take a look and you say, does a person say, why are you saved? Do they point to the cross and who Jesus is and what he's done? Or do they point to themselves uh, based on what they have done or anything else other than Jesus Christ and him crucified? So, Junebug, that's the way that I would state it. Now, I believe, let me try to say this as clearly as I can. I do not believe that salvation or non-salvation is a matter of belonging to the right group or not belonging to the right group. No one will be saved because they attended Roman Catholic services and considered themselves to be a good Roman Catholic. No, you're saved because you put your faith, you trust in, rely on, and cling to the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what he did at the cross and in his resurrection. That's how a person is made in right relationship with God, both for now and all of eternity. So it doesn't matter if you try to throw down a Roman Catholic membership card at the gates of heaven, so to speak. It doesn't matter if you try to throw down a Protestant membership card. It doesn't matter if you try to throw down, and this is because the church tradition I come from, a Calvary Chapel church membership card, if such things exist. Not many Calvary chapels have official church membership, but I think you know what I mean. 
It's not a matter of belonging to the right group or not belonging to the wrong group. It's a matter of that individual's trusting in, relying on, and clinging to who Jesus is and what Jesus did, especially what Jesus did at the cross and in his resurrection. So, because of that principle, I believe that there are people, many people, of course, who are in the Roman Catholic Church but truly have a faith in Jesus. Then again, I believe that there are more than a few people in Protestant churches who they attend that church, maybe they attend that church faithfully, but they do not have a personal trusting in, relying on, and clinging to Jesus. That soul is in jeopardy. So, Junebug, I hope I explained that well enough for you. I'll continue on and go to the next question. Here's a question from our TWR360 audience. They write, I attend seminary, but am conflicted about it. I love to learn from others, but it is a huge expense. What are your thoughts about seminary in general? Okay, I'll give you my general thoughts about seminary, and I do want to stress that these are general thoughts because individual people in their individual circumstances might not fit this general framework of of my opinion that I'm going to give to you right now. Well, first of all, in the large part, I thank institutions of higher learning and education and deep dives in theology and all the rest of it. I thank God that there are seminaries, and I especially thank God that there are some Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Jesus-glorifying, faithful seminaries, even though there are many that are not Bible-believing, Jesus-glorifying, you know, uh, God on. So, thank God for good seminaries. However, my question to you from our TWR360 audience is, what are you looking at seminary for? What are you seeking that seminary would accomplish? Because this is my opinion, and friends, this is just my opinion. You can take it or leave it as you please. I believe that seminary is largely oversold as preparation for pastoral ministry. I think seminary can do a lot of good for a lot of people, but I don't think seminaries do great jobs of training pastors. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily the fault of seminaries, and I'm sure some seminaries do a better job than others. I think that in the most part, for the most part, the best kind of pastoral training happens on an apprenticeship level, where churches take seriously their duty to pour into and to train up the younger people in their church, the people who feel that they may have a call for ministry, and they take it very seriously, and they pour into them. Look, just because you have young people and maybe young people serving doesn't mean you're really pouring into them the way that you should. But I think that the best training for pastoral ministry happens on an apprenticeship level. Now, there are essential things that someone may learn in seminary, and for some people, that may be the best place for them to learn it. 
things about theology, things about Bible background, things about, I don't know, more technical aspects of ministry and such. And all that's great, but, but there are not many people who think that someone comes out of seminary and they're ready to be an effective pastor. Usually, they come out of seminary and then they have their apprenticeship. And their apprenticeship may take a good long time. So, I guess that's my general opinion on seminary. I'm not anti-seminary, uh, even though uh, in some respect for most of my ministry, I never really had a seminary education. I do have a Master's of Divinity now that I just got within the last year or so from Calvary Chapel University. Uh, it's an online school that's recently been accredited, and I think it's a fine school, uh, but that's really at the tail end of my ministry because I love academics. I love to study. But understand, God is not glorified by an ignorant and untrained ministry. If someone is ignorant or untrained and wants to be in ministry, they need to get not ignorant. They get, need to learn and they need to get trained. Um, seminary can do some of that, but not all of it. And that's why I would say, in some regards, seminary is a mixed bag. I hope that's helpful there for you, T.D. And so, given that, you say you're incurring a huge expense from this. Well, you got to play that into the occasion. Um, is, is it worth it? Are, are there other places where you could um, receive the education and the training that would equip you well for ministry, perhaps even better than what you would learn in seminary? Uh, without such a huge expense. All right, those are my general thoughts. I'll be honest with you, how it applies to your specific situation, I don't think I can fully tell, but those are some of my general thoughts. Okay, let me continue on here. The next question comes from Grizzle MC, uh, who writes this. What are your thoughts on why the eternity of hell? Couldn't it be that after some time, that people learn their lesson and then go up to heaven. Well, let me say this, Grizzle. If that is the case, if it is the case that after some period of time in hell, the lake of fire, Gehenna, if after some period of time in hell, people do learn their lesson, they're purified, so to speak, and then they go to heaven. If that is the case, the Bible says nothing about that. I just want you to understand, the Bible doesn't speak of that. And so I, I would almost say this, if that is true, then God doesn't want us to know it. He doesn't want, to want us to plan or to preach as if that were the case. Everything God has revealed to us about hell indicates for us that it is in fact eternal, that it is as eternal as heaven itself is, because the same terminology is used of both. So, we may not like that, that may offend us, but we have to be honest with what the scriptures say. Now, what are my thoughts on that? I see the justice in the eternal nature of hell 
in this regard. And I'm not saying this is the only way that one can make sense of the justice of the eternity of hell, but this is one way. Is that everyone in hell has a debt of sin that they cannot pay. They have rejected the only perfect way of paying that debt. And that is to trust in Jesus and to receive Jesus' perfect payment on the cross. They've rejected that. Therefore, the only payment they can offer comes from themselves. And they themselves are imperfect beings. They themselves, being imperfect beings, are unable to offer a perfect payment. It can't happen. And so it's a sense in which God says to every soul that will end up in hell, you can be freed from hell as soon as you pay the price that your sin demands. But because it is impossible for them to pay that price, they can never be freed from their, so to speak, debtor's prison. I think that's a way to consider this. It's a way to think of it. And I hope that's helpful for you there. Um, dear viewer from uh, Dear Grizzle MC, I hope that's helpful for you. Next question comes from Tim. Tim says, how does a young man with no wife deal with being sexually aroused all the time? Well, Tom, listen, the main way is to set your mind on things above and to keep a very high wall of protection against your mind and against... Uh, um, in defense of your mind and your heart. I guess the way to describe that is um, if you find yourself prone to um, sexual temptation and arousal, then you just need to be extra vigilant in number one, reminding yourself about how God sees the individual's to whom you may consider yourself aroused. Um, they are women made in the image of God. They are somebody's daughter, somebody's wife, somebody's mother, whatever it may be. And you need to consider that, that these are real people. They're not just images on a page or a screen. These are real people. And real people that are often very victimized in the position that they are to produce such alluring images. Now, if you find yourself liable to that, it's smart for you to avoid even what other people would consider to be, uh, you know, non-sexual or barely sexual things. But yet, for you, they would be provocative. Now, again... Please don't make too much of this illustration. It's, it's purely just for illustrative purposes. How it applies to your life individually, you'll have to figure out. But just for example, if you know, and of course you should know, that it's wrong for you to look at pornography and you're really struggling with it, then at the same time, you, you probably shouldn't take a look at women, seek out to look at women in their uh, swimsuits or scantily clad women. 
Again, you're setting a wall of defense that doesn't begin at what people would say is pornography, but begins even earlier than that. I think that's a way that you can help guard yourself. Secondly, be very active in your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Um, Don't let your Christian life be a passive thing. Don't let your Christian life be something where you're filled with, um, you, you, you have too much idle time in your life. Be busy about the things of God. But then here's the third thing I would say, Tim, is recognize that God is sympathetic to you and near to you in your struggle. It may seem sometimes that the temptations to immorality in a sexual sense may seem overwhelming in the mind, in the heart of a man or a woman. That there's such this incredible pull, this incredible you know, drive towards things that are sinful and wrong. And it's reasonable to ask, God, is this unfair? Why is it that I seem to be wired by nature? Now, I would say that it's nature inherited from Adam, not nature directly given by God. But why does it seem that I am wired for immorality? And I would say it just simply this that the great cost that is involved in denying one's self, in denying the flesh, the great cost that is involved in that is a very precious sacrifice laid before God in a life of surrender to him. It is a way to fulfill what Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 speaks about, about not being conformed to the world, but as part of our reasonable service, making our bodies a living sacrifice to God. Because it is so difficult, makes it all the more precious before God when we lay it down before him. Listen, Tim, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're from. But I can say that in the Western world here in California, I believe that Christians are and churches are from time to time under some kind of persecution or under some kind of offense. But it's nothing. It's nothing like what is faced by our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. As far as I can tell right now, it's unlikely that I'm ever going to face violence here in California for being a believer. I may face persecution or attack on other fronts, but probably not violence. And so how can I truly lay down my life in significant ways? One of them is by making a radical commitment to purity and recognize that God loves you and cherishes you and wants to nurture this glad sacrifice in your own life. Hope that's helpful for you there, Tim. Let me move on to the next question from Blake after I take a brief drink of water. Blake asks this question. Does Christ's spiritual suffering and his physical death on the cross provide forgiveness? Or it only... Christ's physical death on the cross, which provided the forgiveness of sins. Blake, 
there is a sense in which you cannot truly separate any of these aspects. The sinless life of Jesus, his perfect obedience, all that he endured in his temptations, all that he endured in his beatings, uh, in his scourgings, in the mockery that he received, all of that is of in some way one piece with what he endured on the cross. So the focus is at the cross because we would believe, because the scriptures tell us, that there was something of a transaction made at the cross. And the transaction that was made at the cross was that God took the um, the sin of man and bore it in himself in the person of work of Jesus Christ and exchanges to man for that the righteousness of God. So there's a focus on the cross, but there is redemptive power and validity in every aspect of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, we should rightly emphasize that work that happened at the cross, because that was the pinnacle of what Jesus did. It was the ultimate demonstration of God's love. And the resurrection was the ultimate demonstration of God's power. But we don't want to separate that from the rest of what Jesus did. In other words, it just wouldn't seem to work at all if Jesus Christ came down as a 33-year-old man and went straight to the crucifixion. No, there was so much in the plan and the heart of God that had to happen before that. Thank you for that question there, Blake. Next uh, question comes from Backyard Farm. Uh, When does the judgment seat of Christ take place for the believer after the millennium. Okay, Backyard Farm, it's not so easy to tell that with precision. I would say, and it makes sense to me, that the judgment seat of Christ takes place before the millennium. And I'll tell you why. It takes place before the millennium because part of our reward is varying degrees of responsibility in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So if that is the case, it makes sense to me that uh, the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ described in Corinthians, that that would be something that happens uh, before the thousand-year millennium of Jesus Christ reigning on this earth. And we don't want to say for a moment that the reign of Jesus is limited to a thousand years. We would just say that there is a special thousand-year period which God describes and has a unique purpose for in his plan for the ages. That, that's how I would understand it, Backyard Farm. I hope that makes some sense to you. Next question comes from James, who asks, In James chapter 5, verse 16, does this mean that some prayers are not answered by God? James 5, 16 says this, Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What well, James Absolutely. Yes, the Bible tells us in many places 
that not all prayers are answered. Not all prayers are heard by God. Uh, Matter of fact, I think that it is an important and significant danger signal in someone's life, spiritually speaking, if they seem to have chronically unanswered prayer. Now, and again, when I say unanswered prayer, I don't necessarily mean prayer that God says no to, though that can include that, because sometimes no is a very adequate answer from God. But what I'm getting at is when there is just no answer to prayer, not a yes, not a no, not even a wait, uh, indicated by God in some way, when there seems to be no answer to prayer, I think that's a danger signal. I think it's sort of, uh, to use a metaphor from driving a car, it's sort of that light on the dashboard that's blinking at you saying, there's something to look into here. There's something that may be definitely wrong. So I do think it's important to say, yes, there are many reasons why a prayer may be unanswered. All right, uh, let me say this, James. I really want to record this sometime uh, for our YouTube audience and I should just put it on the list of many things that I should do. Uh, But I have a message on our website, EnduringWord.com. I'm pretty sure I have the message on there. And it's titled, um, A Danger Signal, Unanswered Prayer. Uh, You'll find it just in the media section of the website under the audio, uh, Q&A topics. Let me see. I'm looking here under Q&A topics. Excuse me while I look at this. Okay, no, that's not the right area to look at. Um, Audio and podcasts. Okay, here, I'm looking at the audio page. Excuse me while I cruise around on my website. Um, I'm looking at the section called Revival in Deeper Life, and I'm looking for the message, A Danger Signal Unanswered Prayer. So uh, look up that message on the Enduring Word website. Uh, Someday I hope to record that uh, message for our YouTube audience because I think, honestly, it's a helpful message. And in that, I do speak of how unanswered prayer can be a danger signal. And I discuss in it the many reasons why the scriptures say that a prayer could be unanswered. Okay, let me keep on going. I do have to tell you, it is very hot in this room. I'm in a little room. It's kind of warm in Southern California right now, and uh, I don't have any air conditioning, and I don't have a fan running because I do have a fan in this room, but the fan uh, would uh, make too much noise for the broadcast. So uh, it's warm in here, but I'm dedicated to you, our YouTube and TWR360 audience, and I want to stay here until about the top of the hour answering your questions. Anyway, next question comes. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back there am I? Well, whatever. Barry asks this question. What does the Bible instruct regarding how to deal with worry or anxiety? Well, Barry, there's a general exhortation or command given to us to cast our cares upon the Lord, knowing that he cares for us. Uh, To be anxious for nothing, but In everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. There there are just simple biblical exhortations to bring your troubles to God. As Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Understand you have a heavenly Father that loves you, that cares you. So we just have these general um, exhortations to 
us for the best of our ability that we should um, lay these things before God, that we should cast our cares upon him, that we should commit things to the Lord in prayer and to the best of our ability, let go of them. Now, having said that, I do think that it's important to recognize that just by personality, and we need to understand, isn't there an amazing diversity in how God has made us personality-wise? You know, God has made us with almost infinite personalities, and it's just an amazing thing to see. Now, there are some personalities that are much more prone to anxiety and worry. And for those people, whether that proneness has to do with biology, whether it has to do with how they think, whether it has to do with how they've been brought up, whether it has to do with what they've experienced in their life, I don't know. It could be a combination of all those things. But there are some people for whom it is just much easier for them to become anxious and worried about things. And those people deserve a special compassion from us who perhaps find it easier to cast our cares upon the Lord. Now, I think that the answer is generally the same for everyone, but we need a ton of compassion and care for those in our midst who find it very difficult to so to speak, let go of things and lay those things down before the Lord and let him be the worrier over those things. So I think in general, the answers are the same, but but we need to recognize that there might be all sorts of factors going on in an individual's life. Maybe it has something to do with their personality type. Maybe it has something to do with their biology, just things going on in their body. Maybe it has something to do uh, with some uh, pain or trauma that they've experienced. Maybe it has to do with how they've grown up. Maybe it has to do with something that nobody can really put their finger on. For some of us, it's a lot more difficult than others, and we need to be very sensitive towards that. All right, hope that's helpful for you there, Barry. Joanne asks this question. Some of my friends and family are going through, by the way, uh, thank you, Devin, for posting that in the Q&A, the message I did on the danger of unanswered prayer. And uh, even though it is available in an audio message there on the Enduring Word website, that would be a great message for me to record just for our YouTube audience. I got a lot of teachings like that that I would like to do. Again, just another thing to put on my list of things to do. Anyway, back to Joanne. Joanne asked this question. Some of my friends and family are going through anguish, grief, some even turning away from Jesus. How do I help them? I see paralyzed in this a failure. Oh, Joanne. First of all, God bless you for caring. I think that it is a sign of God's wonderful work in one of his children that they simply care about the difficulties that other people suffer through. Because God does care, and he wants his people to care. So, whatever the source of the anguish, whatever the source of the grief, whatever is the source of them turning away from Jesus, God bless you that you have a heart that cares. And let me tell you something, Joanne. You and I, we both know this. Everybody in our audience knows this collectively. Um, caring hearts 
carry a lot of burdens. I remember reading this one time regarding the Apostle Paul, and I, I think it's true of many people since Paul, that he had very few burdens regarding himself, but many burdens on behalf of others. And Joanna, it kind of seems that that's what you're talking about right now. You're burdened on behalf of the Joanne, you are in the heart of God. You are sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. This is something that I believe is honorable before God. And all you can do is continue to pray and ask God for open doors to minister unto them. Look, I, I think there's two basic pathways for ministry in times like this. One is to kind of push a door open. And listen, there's a time for that. You know, if somebody, uh, to, to make an analogy, if somebody has collapsed on the floor of their front room and you can see through the window that they've collapsed on the floor and you're there at the door and you just kind of politely knock and knock and then say, well, they won't answer the door. I guess I shouldn't be helping them. Listen, that's just foolish. You're supposed to help them. If you got to push in the door, then you push in the door. There's a place for that. But there's also sometimes a time and a place to say, Lord, you're going to have to open the door. And when you open the door, I am ready and willing to walk through it. Um, Joanne, I, I would pray that the Lord would give you the discernment to know if there's doors you should push open, if there's doors you should wait for the Lord to open, but you can always pray and be ready to minister with whatever open doors the Lord may grant you. Hope that's helpful for you, Julian. Thank you, and uh, God bless you in your heart to minister unto other people. Okay, uh, question here from David asks, it's a real struggle to be a true Christian in this world, talking to God throughout the day. Is that as effective as kneeling and praying, David? Well, David, um, there's no requirement on us that we kneel and pray. Sometimes I like to say this, that there are enough examples of people kneeling in prayer to know that it's a good thing. I mean, Jesus knelt in prayer. Uh, David knelt in prayer. Um, Solomon knelt in prayer. Paul knelt in prayer. I could give other examples, but these are just examples of people that it, it speaks about specifically in the scriptures. There are enough examples of people kneeling in prayer in the Bible to show us that it's a good thing, but it, it doesn't have to be a universal posture of prayer. In the ancient Jewish world, both with the Israel of the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament, the, the common posture of prayer was to pray standing up, uh, with your hands raised up in expectancy to heaven with sort of an upward gaze. That was the common posture of prayer. So they certainly did from time to time kneel in prayer. But we can pray without ceasing no matter what the particular posture of our body is. I hope that's helpful for you, David. You don't, you don't need to have a posture, but... It is good to kneel in prayer from time to time. It, it is good to do that, but we shouldn't think that that's required. 
And then here, a question, another question from David asks, is purgatory a second chance, David, thoughts? Well, David, I'll just give it to you very straight. David Morehouse, um, purgatory doesn't exist. It is an invention of Roman Catholic, and I believe many Anglicans also believe in purgatory. So you could say Roman Catholic and Anglican theology, but I see no evidence for it in the Bible. Either the price was fully paid by what Jesus did for us on the cross, or it wasn't. If there's a leftover price for me to pay, then I think that puts me and everybody else in a lot of trouble. I think purgatory is eliminated not only because the scriptures are silent about it, but because it goes against the principle of the completed work of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. So I would just simply say that purgatory is not a second chance because there is no purgatory. Uh, In the lectures on church history that we're releasing right now, we're going to have a section on purgatory. And um, you'll just have to wait for some of the later lectures in that series. All right, I'm going to deal with one more question that comes from last week. Um, It's a question that comes from Janet, and Janet asks this question. I have a question, Pastor Guzik. Why is it that pastors are given honorarium when they visit and minister in churches? Is it scriptural? All right, Janet, let me give you my understanding, my philosophy of paying an honorarium to a pastor or a preacher if he's preaching or teaching somewhere. Uh, First of all, it is scriptural. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 says this, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. In other words, if you're taught the word, then it's appropriate for you to share with the person who teaches you those things. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11 says this, If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? So Paul saw an appropriate relationship between serving somebody spiritually and receiving from them materially. And then finally, I'd read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So again, that's just another indication of the fact that uh, those who serve the Lord well, especially in the word and doctrine, are qualified, worthy of being um, compensated for that, materially, paid if you want to use that. Now, that's the one side of it. But Janet, let me say another side of it. I think there's something wrong if there is a demand for an honorarium. I will only come and speak for you, speak for your group, speak for your church, if you'll pay me such amount of money. I got to say, that doesn't really hit my heart as being right before God. I think it's right and customary on behalf of those who are receiving the ministry to give something. But I don't think it's right on behalf of the pastor or preacher who's visiting to demand it. That doesn't really seem to be as scriptural in my mind, as an example. So, that's what I have to say on that. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to be with you all. I hope that you can join us next week. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to being with you for another question and answer. Please, if you remember to continue to pray for the work of Enduring Word, uh, this Bible commentary that I have and other Bible resources on YouTube, on the website, on podcasts, on version. We just put out a new Bible reading plan on version. Look it up. Uh, these things are our joy to do, and we're just very grateful for the partners that we have that help us to get this out. And please, we're grateful for those who pray for the ongoing work of Enduring Word. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless you. And again, we're so pleased that you could join us. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.